If you haven't noticed, we're in November, and November means that, uh, it doesn't feel like November, I know, but we're in November, and November means that the annual conversation is back. What's the best way to cook a turkey? What's the best way? And everybody's got opinions on the best way to cook a turkey, and I've tried them all, and I'm still not really good. I was at a men's breakfast yesterday, and I was sort of bemoaning the fact that I still don't really have a way of, like, always cranking out a consistently great turkey. And part of the reason is is because I only make one once a year. So how great can you get at something when you only do it once a year? But I've tried all sorts of things. Let me tell you some of the things I've, tr- I've tried. I've even tried praying over that turkey. But, <laughs> but, but I have I've wrapped turkey, I've wrapped the turkey in bacon before. Anybody heard of that? Anybody done that? I figured, what can't bacon fix? So I'm just going to wrap it in bacon. I've, I've made herb butter, and I've, I've taken the painstaking approach of removing the skin carefully from the meat so I can slide the butter between the skin and onto the meat and get the seasoning in there, and I, I've done that. People, people have said that's what you should do. I've, I've cooked it upside down. Anybody ever cook their turkey upside down? Because it's supposed to prevent the, 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 the heat from cooking the breast fast so that the white meat doesn't get dry, but that the dark meat cooks through. There's all sorts of different ways. Some people stuff their turkey. Some people don't stuff their turkey. Some people say you got to go low heat first, and then you got to finish with high heat. Some people say, no, 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 you got to get the oven really hot and go high heat and then turn the oven off and let it cook at low heat. There's all sorts of things. Last year, Tony Briggs got me into brining my turkey. You guys ever brine a turkey? That, that was good. That was good. But everybody who's ever had a deep fried turkey always claims that's the way to eat a turkey, deep fried turkey, which is like deep fried anything, right? But what is the best way to make a turkey. This morning, we're going to look at a text where Paul teaches us something that I think should be interesting to all of us, and it's simply this. What's the best way to make a difference? What's the best way to make a difference in someone else's life? What's the best way to help other people? And Paul, in this context, he's gone to this city in Macedonia called Thessalonica, and he started a church there, and he started to raise up disciples, and then he got persecuted. They wanted to kill him, so he had to run out of town fast, and he gets a report that they're doing well, but there are some issues, and so he writes his letter back to them. And you might be thinking, well, what Paul did back then, what can it possibly have to do with me? Because I'm not Paul. I'm not going to do these missionary journeys. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to plant churches. I'm not going to preach to huge crowds. I'm not going to write the Bible, of course. Like, I'm not going to do those things. But the truth is, is that you, if, if you have more in common with Paul than you think. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I just want to say to you, there's no such thing as just a Christian. There's no such thing as a second-rate Christian. There's no such thing as professional Christians who do the ministry and help people out and Christians, other Christians who just kind of show up on Sunday and sit back. Paul teaches that every single one of us is called to be a minister, a minister of reconciliation, and a minister of the gospel. And sometimes we have this false mindset. I was at a conference this past weekend, and the speaker was challenging us on this. And he was saying a lot of times people show up to church and they think the church people, you, show up to help the pastors get things done. You help us do ministry. But biblically, what Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 4, it's actually the opposite. The pastors are given as a gift to the church, can't return me, given as a gift to the church so that I can help you, so that Pastor Jason, Pastor Vicky, the other leaders, pastors, prophets, uh, apostles, teachers, evangelists, we're a gift to the church so that we can help you do ministry. Think of how long it's going to take us to get things done if it's you helping me do all the ministry. 
versus me helping all of you do ministry and make a difference where you're at. And so what Paul says here is very relevant to our lives. And I want us to look at this this morning together. First Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Paul's basically, he is describing and defending the way he did ministry when he was in Thessalonica, the way he influenced them, the way he shaped their lives. And let's read this together. I'm going to read to you 12 verses. It says this. For you yourselves know, brothers, he's saying you already know this, that our coming to you was not in vain. Right up the front, right up at front, Paul's saying it wasn't wasted, it wasn't in vain. It accomplished something. Verse 2. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal, our presentation, our message, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers." For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What we're going to see this morning in this text, what we're going to learn together, what we have here, is the what, the why, and the how behind making a difference in people's lives, behind making disciples. The what, the why, and the how. So let's start. The what. The first thing we see, if you're taking notes in your handout, Paul brought a true message, a true message. This is the what. You know, sometimes it's hard to know what's true. Seems like it's getting harder in our world today to know what's true. You can go on the internet, you can read an opinion that says this is true, and then you can read an equally convincing opinion that says, no, this is true. We live in a day of fake news and all that sort of stuff. It's hard to know, are we really getting the truth? It's hard to know. In 2011, Animal Planet put out what they made look like a documentary about mermaids. And the whole two-hour show was like, mermaids are real. They exist, and we have evidence. And it was on the animal planet. This is not Comedy Central. Like, you would expect this to be a trustworthy source. And it was so convincing that one of my friends actually for a few moments believed it was true for just a few seconds. I will not say his name, but his initials are Jared Berry. So, <laughs> I did not ask his permission. Let's see if we're friends after this sermon. But he said to me later, he goes, I, I know it's not true, but it was so well done. And because it was on the animal planet, it was like, how do we know what's true and what's not true? And in a world where it's increasingly hard to tell the truth from a lie, Paul doesn't waver on this. Paul says, if you're going to make a difference in your life, you've got to base your life on the truth. You cannot bring people a message, a word, a hope that isn't true. What good is hope if it's not true? 
what good is news if it's not true? And Paul is saying here that our appeal to you did not spring from error. Now, one of the things is back in this time in history, there were a lot of people like Paul who were traveling and teaching different things in different communities, but they weren't all teaching the truth. And it was actually one of the primary forms of entertainment back then, just like maybe bands would travel and do concerts for us now and we would pay money to go see a band perform. People would pay and gather together to hear great orators, great speakers, and they would like, just kind of be like, overwhelmed by the force of their skill. And very popular back then was a thing called rhetoric. And rhetoric back then basically meant that how you say something is actually more important than what you say. How you say it is more important. So your message might be true, but if you're boring, who cares? Your message might be false, but if you're entertaining and you're moving and you make me feel something, then I'm in. And they got things confused. And I'm not sure things have changed actually very much in a couple thousand years. We still really have a hard time telling the difference between the substance of what's being said and the way something is being said. And as a speaker, and I'm a communicator, obviously I speak to you on Sundays, but I also travel and speak in other environments, in, in business environments, in hospital environments, and I work very hard at crafting my skill. And I know that passion and skill is important if you're a communicator. But I also know that if your message is not true, then passion and skill actually is dangerous because it, because it makes a false message seem more alluring and interesting. And Paul, this man who wrote this letter, he spent so much of his energy at this time when the gospel of Jesus was just starting to spread, he worked so hard to keep it pure. He wanted the pure truth. He wanted the true message. And he would confront different false gospels that people were believing. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. One, let's call this the permissive gospel. And the permissive gospel was that if you put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live after you do that. Go ahead and live however you want. In fact, some of them were believing that if you sinned more, it was better for God. Because by sinning more, you gave God more opportunities to forgive you. And in him having more opportunities to forgive you, you're, having him more, you're giving him more opportunities to display your grace. Now, I know for some of us that actually has been our life. But at the same time, that's not the way that we want to live. We shouldn't be motivated like if we sin more, it's good for God. That's what he wants. Grace is not just the power to save us. It's the power to grow us and to sanctify us. So some people were teaching the permissive gospel, and Paul said, God forbid. On the other end of the spectrum, some people were preaching what we'll call the performance gospel, which is this. Jesus did his part, now you do the rest. You perform. And your righteousness and your standing before God and your acceptance by God and your salvation and your ability to endure to the end is totally reliant upon your performance. So be really good, behave, and follow all the rules. And Paul is saying, you can't save yourself. If you could save yourself through your own performance, then why did Jesus have to give his life on a cross on our behalf? So you had, the, you had the permissive gospel, you had the performance gospel, you had also versions back then of the prosperity gospel. God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and never struggle and never suffer, and, he, and it's all about you. Then there was also this thing, it was more like a mystical gospel, uh, where the Gnostics were saying, yes, yes, the gospel is true, but what you really need is secret knowledge special revelation. They were very mystical about it. Now, all four of those Gospels are still being preached in our country today, in our world today, on television, on podcasts, different versions of it. My question is this, can you discern them? Can you tell the difference? Or is it possible for us to be won by how it's being said instead of noticing what's being said? 
Because there are some, I'm not going to name anybody, but there are some great preachers out there who are talented, far more talented and gifted than I am, who preach a false gospel. And it's very easy to get pulled into that because of how it makes you feel and how it moves you and how exciting it is. But Paul is saying if you're going to make a difference in people's lives and if the gospel is going to make a difference in your life, it has to be true. It has to be true. And some people will say, well, I don't, I don't really worry about that sort of like theology stuff, what's true. I just follow God. Well, who's God? You can't follow, you can't just follow God. In following God, you are determining in your mind who is the God that you're following. And what does he require of you? And how does he interact with you? And you know what that's called? Theology. That's your theology. And everybody has a functional theology. Everybody bases their life on a set of doctrines. So the question isn't, do you base your life on some set of beliefs? The question is this, are the beliefs that you've based your life on, are they true? Are they historically verifiable? Are they uh, intellectually credible? Are they uh, existentially satisfying? Do they work and are they true? And that's why Paul said to his spiritual son Timothy, who was a pastor in a church in Ephesus, pay close attention to two things. It's good advice for you and me this morning. Pay close attention to your life and pay close attention to your doctrine. What do you believe and what beliefs are you building your life on? A.W. Tozer, famous theologian, said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what comes into your mind when you think about God, that's your theology. You have a theology. I want to just kind of pause and say this. In my experience being around Christians, a lot of them, if you were to say, close your eyes, imagine God's face thinking about you. What does his face look like? Most Christians, if they were honest, would say something like this. He looks a little disappointed. He looks a little frustrated, a little upset, a little mad, a little bit angry. And that reveals something about their theology. Here's what we know from Scripture. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, God delights in you. He's pleased with you. He loves you. He has good things for you. You bring a smile to God's face. You bring joy to his heart. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, there were two different times in the gospel accounts where Jesus heard the audible voice of God spoken, the Father. The Father's voice broke into the natural, and Jesus heard it. First time was right before, it was when he was baptized in water, right before he was going to go into the desert and be tempted for 40 days. And then the second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right before he was going to head to the cross. So very strategic timings that God the Father spoke to God the Son in an audible way right before he was going to be tempted and right before he was going to go to the cross. It's two most difficult seasons of his life probably. And both times God said the exact same thing to Jesus. You are my son whom I love and I'm so pleased with you. I'm so happy about you. I'm so happy with you. And listen, if Jesus, who we believe to have been the son of God, needed to hear that, how much more do you and I need to hear it? When's the last time you heard the Father say to you, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, and I'm so happy about you, and I'm so pleased with you? Because of his son and what, his, what the work that he's done. That is the truth. And you cannot 
help other people if you don't offer them truth. You can't make disciples if you don't center it on the true message of the gospel. So how do we know truth? Let me give you a few practical things and we'll move on to the second point. First, spend time in Scripture. But don't spend time in Scripture in a vacuum all by yourself. You need to be in Scripture in community. Get a good study Bible. If you need a, if you need a recommendation, I can give you a recommendation. But, but learn about Scripture and spend time in Scripture and learn from what other people say about Scripture. Lean into sermons on Sunday morning when you get here. You, know, you get here and you've sung and you're listening for me or you're listening to me speak and I'm up here and some Sundays I'm working really hard and I can tell sometimes when the room is working with me and you're leaning in and you're like, I'm here this morning and I'm gonna get everything out of this. I'm gonna get past all his dumb jokes and I'm gonna get everything else out of this. All his stories about food and his girls, but I'm gonna get something out of this, right? And so lean in on Sunday mornings to get something out of what God is saying. Listen to sermons. And I hope you listen to more than just me in this day and age. Listen to other sermons and other people preach throughout the week. Uh, be a part of a grow class on a Wednesday night. Uh, here's a real practical thing you can do. Go online and, and familiarize yourself with the Bible Project. The Bible Project is one of the greatest resources online today for becoming biblically literate in a biblically illiterate world. They're very interesting, well-done videos that take you through books of the Bible in about seven minutes or less and give you a sense of what the whole story of that book is about. It's an amazing resource. I would recommend start doing that every day. Go to that website and watch one video. You're going to learn so much about Scripture by doing that. But we have to lean into the truth. Okay, so Paul came with a true message. Secondly, Paul came with a pure motive. If the what was the message, here's the why. Why did he make a difference? Why did he want to make a difference? I have three daughters, as I'm, I'm, maybe I mentioned, 11, 8, and 5. And I used to tell people when they would say, David, what's life like with three girls in your home? I would say, well, it's a life of dolls, drama, and Disney. <laughs> That was always my answer. And as they're getting older, it's a little less dolls and Disney and a little more drama. But you know how that goes. Dolls, drama, and Disney. My girls are still at the age where they love Disney. And on the Disney Channel, the last few years, there's been these movies that have come out that have been wildly popular called The Descendants. And The Descendants are basically, this is as if like the, the Disney heroes and villains have grown up and they have children. And the villains all live on one island, and the heroes all live on one island, and they kind of interact with each other. And in the most recent episode, or the most recent movie, Descendants 3, the, the, the young girl who is supposedly the daughter of Sleeping Beauty, Princess Aurora's daughter, she wants to be queen, but the prince chooses somebody else. And she sings a song about it, of course, because that's what they do in Disney movies. They sing songs about their feelings. And... Um, Here's what, here's, here's what she says, and, and I listen to this song with my daughters, and she says this. This is, the, this is how the song starts. I followed all the rules. I drew inside the lines. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine. I waited patiently for my time, but when it finally came, he called her name. Now, these sort of songs are teachable moments if you have children, by the way. Don't just let them digest this stuff as if it's true. I always will challenge my girls like, what does she actually want the most? What's she filling her heart up with? What is this about? But one of the things that I've always said to her, said to my kids when they listen to this song or they hear this song, I said, why did she follow all the rules? Why did she draw inside the lines? Why didn't she ask for things that didn't belong to her? Why was she so patient for herself? Her true motives are exposed in the song. She did all these things because she thought, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I will get this. And the truth is, is that in the Christian faith, it's very easy to slip into this mode of, if I do these things for you, God, then you will do this for me. 
And we're not, if that's our case, if that's our heart, then we're not really serving God because we love him most. We're serving God because we love ourselves most. And serving God has simply become a tool. It's useful to get what our hearts treasure the most, right? And so we have to always pay attention to the motives of our hearts. Why are we doing things? And Paul here comes to Thessalonica and he says, we had pure motives. God knows and you know. And there's three unhealthy motivations that Paul was free from. We're going to hit them super quick and get to the last point. Here they are. First, he was free from past pain. He mentioned Philippi. They had just come from Philippi where Paul and Silas were beaten publicly. Uh, uh, they, were, they were arrested and they were thrown in jail without a trial. And Paul was a Roman citizen. And back then, according to the laws of Rome, that should not have happened. That could not happen to a Roman citizen. They could not be arrested and beaten without a fair trial. And Paul was. And then Paul and Silas end up in jail, and that's that great story where they're praising God at midnight in the earthquake, and they get free, and the jailer uh, places his hope in Jesus. But Paul has to leave Philippi because it's dangerous there, and he comes to Thessalonica. And when he gets to Thessalonica, he says, you know what we came out of, but we didn't drag that pain with us. We came and we loved you anyway. And if we're going to love people and make a difference in people's lives, if we're going to make disciples as our church mission says we should, we're going to have to break free from some past pain. If we don't break free from past pain, we drag it into every future relationship. We drag it into every other house, every other church. We just drag our pain with us. And here's what happens if we don't get free from pain. We end up doing one of two things. On this extreme, we end up letting that pain make us bring pain on other people. In other words, we get angry and hard and bitter and we become a mean person and we become a bully. And Paul says, we didn't come and bully you. We didn't come and tell you what you had to believe. Our boldness was in God, not in ourselves. We didn't come as a bully. But on the other end, what you might do with your pain is you might try to protect yourself from future pain. So what you do is you actually uh, don't know how to speak the truth anymore. And instead of bullying, you become someone who flatters people, who tells people what you think they want to hear because you want their approval and their acceptance. As long as pain has control over our hearts, we're going to swing one way or the other. We're either going to use our pain as a weapon or we're going to try to use our pain as a shield. And in using our pain as a shield, we're never going to be honest. We're going to, we're going to flatter people. We're going to seek the approval of people. We're going to be enslaved to other people. Or we're going to use our pain as a weapon and attack other people. And you can't be effective in making a difference in people's lives if you're not free from past pain. Secondly, Paul was free from potential gain. He said, we didn't come to you greedy. These other guys that were traveling and speaking at the same time as Paul, many of them were in it for the money. They are trying to line their pockets. They are trying to live off of other people. Paul said, we didn't take a dime from you. And he even says in there, we had the right to do so because we're apostles. But we laid our right down so that we wouldn't become a burden to you, just so that you could hear the gospel. We have to be free from potential gain. And then the last thing we have to be free from is the need for personal fame, to be noticed and to be known. If you want to make a difference in people's lives, truly make a difference in people's lives, and you have to be noticed for doing it, and you have to be known for doing it, it's never going to be what God wants it to be. It's amazing. Listen, church. It's amazing what God will do. I believe that what God will do in Trinity is going to be amazing. I, this, is, this is my vision. I believe we're going to look back three, five years from now, we're not even going to recognize what God has done because of how good he is because of how faithful he is. But here's what I know. It's not going to get done if we have to be known and noticed. There's no superheroes in this church. I'm not the star in this church, Pastor Jason, Pastor Vicki, Pastor Uni. There's, there's not superstars and then everybody else on the bench waiting their weekly turn to do something. 
what God's interested in, all of us being mobilized for his mission, all of us being stars in his galaxy, shining and glorifying him through the way that we live. And the only way it's going to happen is if, no, if nobody cares who gets the credit for what gets done. We, don't, we shouldn't care who gets the credit for what gets done because all the glory belongs to God anyway. You don't want his glory. You don't want to touch his glory. The glory goes to him. We simply have the honor of being a part of what he's doing. So the what, the what is a true message. The why is a pure motive. And then let me close with this. The, the, the how, the right manner, the way in which Paul made a difference in people's lives. He uses two metaphors. Did you notice them? They're kind of related. In one verse, he talks about being like a mother, nursing her child. And then in another verse, he talks about being a father, encouraging, exhorting, and challenging children. And he kind of uses some stereotypical roles here, but they're helpful for us. And in one, we have the mom who is gentle, who is caring, who's providing sustenance for her child, who holds her child near, who provides for her child everything that he or she needs. And on the other hand, you have the father who also embodies that, but also is challenging them and pushing them and exhorting them and moving them forward. And if you're going to make a difference in people's lives, you got to bring those two things together. And you need wisdom to know when to be which, don't you? There's times where you need to be gentle and loving and affirming and kind. And then there are times where even in your kindness, you need to be truthful and honest. Listen, nobody in this world grows without somebody telling them the truth at some point. Nobody makes changes without somebody finally being honest with them. And Paul says, here's how we did it. We were gentle like a nursing mother. We were honest like a father who cares for his children. And that metaphor of mother and father implies this. It implies a lot of time together. Have you noticed moms with new babies? They don't put them down very often, do they? They hold them close. They'd hold them all day if they, if they could. That's the, way that, that's the way that imagery works. And Paul says to, says to the Thessalonians in the middle of the passage, he says, we loved you so much. And let me just pause and say this. Who are the people in your life that are dear to you, that you love so much that, as he said, you're willing to share not only the gospel, but your life? Are you willing to share your life with people? We love to share our opinions, post them online. We love to share our thoughts, our struggles, our, our problems. We love to, maybe even you're willing to share your pew on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're willing to share a church service on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're willing to share something. Paul says it goes so much beyond that. And listen, at Trinity, we're going to be a people, by God's grace, that share our lives with each other in ways that are startling that share our lives with each other in a way that makes the community around us take notice and say, I don't have that in my life, and I need that. The way they love each other, the way they fight for each other, not with each other, but for each other, the way that they are gentle and truthful, I can't find it somewhere else. And in Jesus Christ, we find the only motivation to be gentle and truthful. We can be gentle with people because of how gracious God has been towards us. But we can be truthful with people because we're not a slave to what they're going to think of us if we're truthful because we know what God thinks of us because of Jesus. And everything I talked about this morning, the true message, pure motive, and the right manner, Jesus embodied all of that. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. What was his motive? He said it himself. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. 
He shared his life. He literally let his life be poured out. The, the, he let the life within his body be poured out on the cross. And when we behold Jesus and we see him for who he is, it motivates us to do the same. There's a, I'll finish with this. There's a story Jesus told in Matthew 13. It's called a parable about four different types of soil. Soil on the road, beaten down on a path. Soil in some rocky areas. Soil in some weedy, thorny areas. And then good soil. And the farmer goes out and he casts his seed on all the soil. And nothing, you know, the, the birds steal the soil off the road. The rocky soil seed doesn't grow. The, the weeds and the thorns choke out what's growing. And the, but over here in the good soil, it grows and it bears much fruit. And usually the parable is told as an example of how the kingdom of God grows in our hearts. And, it's, and that is the primary meaning. But recently I was listening to a song by one of my favorite singer-songwriters named John Mark McMillan. And he took a twist on the parable that I had never thought of before. And his whole point was this. You know what's so beautiful and amazing about Jesus? He allowed himself to be poured out on the road, on the rocks, and on the weeds. We all would have said, no, no, Jesus, be more strategic. Just love the people who are going to love you back. Just, just love the people who have good soil in their heart. Jesus was willing to spend time and give his life for the road, for the rocks, and for the weeds. And at the end of the song, he changes what he's singing about, and he says this, basically, God, let that be my life. Pour me out on the road, on the rocks, and on the weeds for your glory and for your kingdom. There's so many people who need to know the goodness of Jesus and experience the goodness of Jesus. And how are they going to do it? As we go out, as we're sent out in truth, true message, right? We're sent out with a true message. We're sent out with pure motives, and we do it in the right way. Let's pray together this morning.